I'm going to rewind a little bit, and for those of you who are younger, uh, we used to have little things in our cars called cassette players, and then when you wanted to hear something again, you had to push a rewind button. It takes you back to the previous song. That's what we're going to do today. Um, we're going to rewind a little bit. Uh, on the first Sunday in January, I preached on Jesus in prayer out of Mark chapter 1, and it was just struck me. What, uh, what Mark writes of Jesus' prayer life, of one specific event. And it says this in verse 35, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And as I wrestled through this passage in my own personal quiet time, I had a couple of questions that just surfaced. One is, why did Jesus wake up very early in the morning while it was still dark? I mean, it had been a very pressing season in his life. Just that previous day, that previous 24 hours, he'd been teaching in the synagogue. He'd been healing the sick, casting out demons. You know, all that kind of stuff way into the evening, late into the evening. So why did he, why did he uh, wake up in the first place? It had been intense. And then the second question was this. Once he woke up, why did Jesus stay up? Why did he stay up and leave the house, go to a solitary place where he prayed? And my answer to that question was because Jesus was compelled to pray. That through prayer, it was through prayer that he connected with his father. And it was through prayer where he clarified his identity, where it was rem- he was reminded again and again and again and again in the midst of a very corrupting culture. He was reminded of this truth where God said to him in his baptism, You are my dear son. In you, I take great delight. And after I preached that sermon, uh, I think it was Stan who came up to me and she, he says, you know, Martin, you really need to take and kind of capitalize on that and just make that, consider making that the theme for Communion Sundays, is this issue of prayer, of connecting with the Father and clarifying our identity. And I, I wrestled with that some because that means I would be, re, I would be doing the Lord's Prayer. And uh, if you know me, you know that uh, I've done the Lord's Prayer numerous times throughout my history here. It's something that continues to draw me and it's something that continues to compel me to pray. Um, why? Because it, it connects me with my Father and it clarifies my own identity. Um, and it does it even on, at times and seasons when I don't feel like it. So I decided, based upon my brother's exhortation on Monday, I thought, you know what, Lord, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to take, and we're going to break down on Communion Sundays. We're going to take one stanza of the Lord's Prayer each Communion Sunday. So I've got two words today, and I think I can handle that. But why, why the Lord's Prayer? Why the Lord's Prayer? It's because Jesus said to his disciples, this is how you should pray. And it's not about a rote, it's not about a formula, it's about a relating. It's about a relatedness. It's about how we engage God. I, I engage my wife differently than I engage any other woman. I engage God differently than I engage anyone else on earth. It's rooted in my identity and my connection with him says, this then is how you should pray. This, the whole word for prayer there is prosukomai, where it means you come before the Lord, His presence. You just engage Him in a relaxed, engaging, face-to-face kind of way. 
I like what N.T. Wright said regarding the Lord's Prayer. He said this, When Jesus gave His disciples this prayer, He was giving to them a part of His own breath, His own life, and His own prayer. And I don't know if you pick up on that, but that's a very sacred place to be. He invites us into this sacred, life-giving space that is profoundly influential and formative in our lives. It's not just a going before someone and talking with them. It's a way of relating. It's a way of getting life back to yourself. It's a way of, of walking away in a way that's a little different than you walked into it with. He gave His own breath, His own life, His own prayer. And Jesus invites us into that place where we can connect with the Father and we can have our identity rooted and clarified because we need it again and again and again and again. Amen? Because we lose sight of it. So today we're going to deal with two words. Our Father in Heaven. It is through prayer... Through this prayer, that, Je- that Jesus radically redefines our whole relationship with God. He radically redefines our whole relationship with God in a way that had never been defined in this way before. Never before, prior to this, could it, would anyone have dared to pray something like this. Now, in the Old Testament... This father metaphor is referred to or alluded to 14 times, but it's different in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God was seen as the father of a nation. It was a theocracy where God was the ruler. It was much more of a nationalistic sense. But in the New Testament... Jesus reveals something very, very different. He doesn't reveal God as the father of a nation. He reveals God as the father who is close, who is intimate. Now, what made all the difference? What made the difference between that Old Testament sense and this New Testament Reality. It was this. It was through the cross, through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, that God's, God's justice against our sin would be satisfied. It was through the cross that our sin would be forgiven. And it was through the cross that the stain of our sin would be removed so that there is no longer this sense of foreboding condemnation. It was through the cross that His righteousness would be given to us. It was through the cross that the first time we would have, in a way that no one else had had prior to the fall in the garden, it's time, the first time we would have unhindered access to Almighty God. It was the first time 
any of that would take place. That at this point, all of the obstacles that had existed prior to this point, all of the obstacles that had existed between man and God were removed. Were removed. And then the unthinkable takes place. Something more, something even more intimate takes place. And it's this. He adopts us as sons and daughters. He adopts us as sons and daughters. God graciously, it's because of that, it's because of the cross, that God graciously relates to us. He is able to graciously relate to us as our Father. Prior to that, it wasn't going to happen. It couldn't happen. Anything that did happen prior to this was just an illusion. It was a distant hope that someday this might take place. Now, keep in mind that God could have, He didn't have to adopt us as His children. God could have used other relational metaphors, other ways of engaging with us relationally. He could have used the metaphor, the relationship of a king with a subject. He could have used the relationship between a master and a slave. He could have used the relationship between a mother and a father, or between just a God and a human being, the creator and the created. But here's the thing, He didn't. He didn't. He didn't settle for any of those relationships. Instead, what he did is he chose the most intensely personal and the most intensely familial relationship that could, could exist. And that is between a father and a son and a daughter. And what just wasn't just any word for father. It was Abba, Father. It doesn't get better than that. It doesn't get closer than that. I like what J.I. Packer writes. Our adoption is the highest privilege. Hear that. The highest privilege. There's no higher privilege. It is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. It's higher than even justification. But I had to ask the question, how can this be? It's because this, adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into His family and and into His fellowship and He establishes us as His children and heirs. Realize you're an heir of Jesus Christ. You're you're an heir of the Father. You're going to get an inheritance. You realize Jesus gets an inheritance too? You know what that is? That's us. I think we get the better end of the deal. Closeness, affection, and generosity are are at the heart of this relationship. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. Amen? That's justification. But here's adoption. Adoption. But to be loved by God and cared for by God as as our Father is far greater. That is just profound. You understand the, the need 
that God sees within us that we have and the desire that He has for us. The passion that He has to relate to us and the passion and the ability that this gives us to be able to relate to Him. In October of this last year, there was a young man, he was 16 years old, and his name was Davion Only. He was an orphan. His mother was a criminal and died in jail and just raised in the foster system. When he turned 16 years old, he put on an old tattered suit that was too big for his frame, and he walked into a church and he asked the pastor, he said, can I, can I say something? And he stood before a church of 300-some people in South Florida. And he asked this question. He said, will someone adopt me? I don't care if you're blue or black or purple or white or whatever or pink. It doesn't matter. I just want someone who will love me until the day I die. And it captured the hearts and the imagination of the world. I was watching an interv- or a, an announcement of this the other day on the internet, and the the gal, the, the the newscaster was speaking of it. She started to weep. The heart of a child crying out, an orphan, one who belongs to no one, crying out and say, "Would someone love me?" And God is, says, "Every one of us has that within us. Will someone love me?" And he says, I will. I will love you until the day you die. And then beyond that. And then beyond that. Our Father. Relating to God as our Father, it changes everything, doesn't it? This changes how I relate to Him in my life and how I live my life. How can I not want to honor Him? How I pray. But this is the core of my identity. And it is the context of my relationship with Him. And God says to us, as my son Martin Schlomer, as your or as my daughter Kim, or Lisa, as my daughter, you can trust me to lead and to empower you, just like any dad would. You can trust me to call you to live a life with purpose. You can trust me to provide everything that you need to, along the way as you live that life of purpose. You can trust me to relentlessly pursue you even when you run away from me. How cool is that? Look at the the parable of the prodigal son who tells his father, you're as good as dead to me. But every day the father stands on the edge of his property and he awaits his son's return, watching for him. And then when he comes back, He runs to his son. He breaks all the social rules of the town. And he embraces him. He doesn't even give his son a chance to say, Father, forgive me. He doesn't even give his his son a chance to to say a word. And he said, my son who was lost has come home. 
And he wraps his coat around him. It's a picture of Christ. He puts the ring on his finger and he tells everyone, it's as if he's telling everyone, this man's mine. I claim him. And he says, now we're going to go party. Now we're going to go party. He's saying this. When he adopts us as his child, as his son or his daughter, he's saying, I claim you as my son. I claim you as my daughter. It doesn't get better than that to have the God and the creator of Almighty, the Almighty God, the creator of the universe, to look you in the eyes and to say, I claim you. Can I have an amen? And then for us to respond and say, Father, I claim you. And I honor you. That's the heart of obedience. That's the heart of honor. That's the heart of holiness. And when we lose that, but we keep the the rules, for lack of a better term, the obligation of holiness, because He is God, He is our Father. But we strip it of the heart of appreciation and adoration for His claiming of me. But if I lose that admiration, it sucks the marrow out of the meaning and all you're left with is a husk. We'll talk more about that next week. He says, I claim you. I claim you. See, this changes how I relate to Him in my life and in my prayer. And I continue to want to claim that in a deeper and deeper way in my own life. And I continue to wrestle with that and to say, Lord, continue to drive this deeper within me, even after being in ministry for 25 years and having preached this many times and written papers on it and all of this, I realize I'm just scratching the surface. But it also changes how I pray to God and how I pray for others. This last week, Wesley, my youngest son, is taking a fairly high-level math class, calculus or something like that. I didn't do well in math. I almost didn't graduate from college because I didn't do well in math. You had to, I had to take bonehead math in college. I graduated from that class with a D-. minus. You know how close that is to them keeping my, my degree? A D-. minus. It's all those details in mathematics. They're overrated. <laughs> I got the concept. Forget the details. But somehow they just don't see it like that. Well, he called, he, he called me on Wednesday and he said, Dad, he said, pray for me. Because I'm supposed to have a test next week, but the professor just announced that it was going, he was going to give it on Friday. And he said, I have no idea how I'll get ready for it. <clears throat> for the first time in his life, he's really interested in getting A's. 
because he realizes that they now mean something like a future for what he wants to do. And but as I heard him, I heard something deeper that really moved me. And I heard him being racked by this fear, a fear of failure. Of I don't know what I'm going to do if I can't do this. And I wanted to, as his dad, to reach into his life and to grab that fear and to rip it out in the worst way. Thursday morning, as I was praying for him, I was using all the words in my ability to be able to try to talk to God about what I was feeling on his behalf. And I just finally said, God, it just doesn't touch it. It just, I can't touch it. And I was struck by this reality. God is a father. He understands how I feel. He understands my heart for my son. And so I started praying. I said, God, you understand. You are a father. You understand the heart of a father towards his son. I'm limited, but you're not. Would you touch him in a way that I would if I could, but I can't? And that became a profound revelation to me. As I thought about that, I thought, God, would you touch him in a way that I would if I could, but I can't? And I was thinking about Matthew 7:11, where Jesus was telling the disciples, he says, if you are fathers, you as fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more do I, am I going to, is your Father who is, who is in heaven going to give good gifts to those who ask? I said, He gets it. God gets it. He understands my heart as a father towards my sons. He is a shepherd. God gets it. He understands my heart towards you as His, as his, as his people. And so I just started thinking about this and applying this to every aspect of my prayers. Of God, as a shepherd of your people, would you touch them in a way, would you meet them in a way that I would if I could, but I can't? And he says, I've been waiting for you to say that. Because I get it. I get it. It changes everything. It changes everything. So if you're a father, you have children, you need to understand God gets the agony of your heart towards your children and towards those that you care about. He gets it. And he says, I'm there. I'm there. It's a profound, profound thing to be the adopted son, the adopted daughter of Almighty God. 
The problem with that is, is that while we may know it up here, oftentimes it gets lost in their saboteurs, what I would call saboteurs, who take and who sabotage the reality of that within us, who make it difficult or who compromise our ability to be able to relate to God as our Father in the way in which He intended it. Broken homes. You know, when a dad abuses his child, it sabotages that child's ability to be able to relate to God as his father. Because our children, our children, will understand the fatherhood of God through the the matrix or through the framework that I as a dad provide. And all of a sudden you see warning signs going up all over the place. When I sat with my pastor in his office, I asked him the question, I said, how can I relate to God as my father when my dad was an angry, angry man? And he just said, John Winger said this, he said, Martin, you've got to go back to the Gospels. You just got to study the life, read the life of Jesus again and again and again. And that was 20 plus, that was almost 30 years ago. And I'm still doing it. Reworking that understanding of God as my Father. That's why this prayer is so important to me. I had a gal tell me once after I preached this a number of years ago in this place. She said, I never understood why I never wanted to get close, too close to God in prayer because I viewed him like I did my father who was abusive and distant. I want to say this to dads. Please understand the power that you have in the lives of your children to help them understand the very nature and character of God. They will seek to understand Him through the matrix that you give to them. And you can give them a good matrix or you can give them a corrupted matrix. Just understand the power that you have. Broken homes is one thing that sabotages that relationship. Another is hurtful words or broken relationships within community. I had someone ask me this, this question, speaking of, speaking of within the context of Christian community, how do I walk as a daughter of God when others don't see me that way and they don't treat me that way? How do I do that? You see, the words that we speak to one another, the actions that we treat with which we treat one another, have a profound influence on deforming how we relate to God. They have a profound impact in deforming our understanding of God by changing our very identity and giving us a false identity, compromising our understanding that I am a son of God or I'm a daughter of God, beloved and holy in Him, accepted by Him. And when we are treated in a way that is disgraceful, we take and we bind them, we bind them in an old identity that God has called us out of. 
And we bind them in condemnation. We bind them in disgrace. We bind them in shame. That is not from God, but God, but instead God's word in James says this. It is demonic. We cannot speak those words to our husbands or to our wives or to our children or to one another because when we do, they are headshots. They are shots that take and and go right for the kill zone of our identity, which will compromise our ability to connect with him. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, he says, Speak no unwholesome word to one another. No word that is trash talk is what I call that. It's sapros, it's filthy, stinking, rotting words. Speak no unwholesome word to one another, but only those words which give grace and are building up. Building up towards what? Reminding us who we are as sons and daughters of Almighty God. Because words that are lies have a profound ability, a demonically charged ability according to James. A power that is rooted in demonic power to reshape and reform our lives in a way that is contrary to who God has declared us to be. So please, do not do that. And it could be with words. It could be with actions. Keeping someone at arm's length for whatever reason. It could be whatever. One man wrote this. It takes a profound conversion to accept the belief that God is tender and loves us just as we are. Not in spite of our sins and faults, but even with them. How can he do that? Because of the gospel. He can do that because of the gospel. Because we are holy and blameless in the Beloved. Just like the father of the prodigal wrapped his royal coat around his son, Jesus wraps his blood, he wraps his righteousness around us as his children. And when he does, he looks deep into our lives, and that's what he sees. Sother goes on to say, not in spite of our sins and faults, but with them. God does not condone evil or sanction evil. But instead, he does not withhold his love because there is evil in us. So as you hear these things, this is where you get a chance to talk back to me. As you hear these things, what goes, what's going through your mind? What are you thinking? Hopefully it's not about Super Bowl. What are you thinking, Michael? I think a lot of people uh, buy into the enemy's lies. Amen. They feel condemned. So they need to be reminded of these truths. Mm-hmm. I do sometimes as well. Amen. Amen. What else? Yes. 
think about the lives that are just men or women, but defines our work. Hmm. Amen. He is the one who gets to define that. Oh, that's profound. Yes. Who else? Mark. Amen. Being a defender of that on behalf of our ourselves, on the behalf of those we care about, we love. You know, that's why God that's why Paul says, put on the helmet of salvation. You know what that, that's referring to? That's all of chapter one of Ephesians. That's our identity as his sons and as his daughters. Okay? Time for one more thought. Anybody else? Yes. That's okay. Wait till wait. She, what she says is always good. So why don't you give that to uh, to Linda? Uh, mine's really basic. And over the last few years, I've learned, and I mean this in such a respectful way for him. To him, I'm his kid. Mm-hmm. I'm his kid. No matter what anybody says to me or treats me, I'm his kid. And that that's basic, but that means the world to me. Amen. Tom. Yeah, my, my too is, is very much along the same kind of line. And as you were talking, you know, we need to be reminded, and Scripture reminds us in several places about this reality that um, sometimes I get blinded to that. But First uh, John, it says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. But it doesn't stop there. It says, And that's what we are. Mm-hmm. His kids. And as I was processing and thinking about what you're talking about, you know, I was thinking about pop in our home and the kids will bring a glass and we pour it up and it's a little glass and everybody gets to have some of the refreshment. But, you know, the reality is, is the, the idea of God lavishing his love on us. It's more than sufficient. It's like my kids coming with a small glass and I fill it up, but it's just, no, no, get a bigger one. <laughs> you know, get a bigger one. It's going to be more than what we need. Amen. To be called his kids. Amen. Matt. I was going to say, Martin, I'm glad you dropped some NT right in there. I also like write a lot. And he says in his book, Simply Christian, he talks about that the truest form of ourself is the person we are in Jesus Christ. Hmm. And as someone who was not too long ago at Washington State University in, in college, there's such a search, I think, among my generation for identity and trying to find out who am I, what, why am I here, what is my purpose, and being able to come back to the truth of the gospel, that the truest person we are, our, our true self, is in Jesus. And whenever we live apart from him, we're living just as a shell of our true selves. And coming to that realization has been, has been big, really big for me in my walk with the Lord, that I can, you know, my truest self is the person I am when I'm close to Jesus Christ. Amen. And I will be the first to tell you that those who that the biggest thing that people struggle with is all rooted back into their identity. And everything else are just symptoms that all point back to those those realities. So let's take a moment. Well, I want to spend a, some time in prayer. Just a couple of moments is all we have because I spoke too long. But um, I'd like to ask Mike if you would just start out by praying and just, you know, this is a chance. I want to give some of you a chance just to pray. You know, what do you want to say to your father? What do you want to say to him? Okay. So, Mike, would you start for us? Father God, we just want to thank you so much for your amazing grace that you continue to pour out on us. 
Lord, we realize that everything we have is a gift from you. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. And we just thank you for that. We just thank you that we can come to this place where we are encouraged by our brothers and sisters. And we can come to a place where we are not condemned. Where we are reminded that the lies the enemy tells has no power over us whatsoever. We're not defined by what the world says about us. We're not defined by our failures. We're defined by who we are in Jesus Christ. And I just pray that we can all know that truth here this morning. Father, thank you for the example of uh, sonship and fatherhood that is ours in Jesus and looking at his relationship with you. I think the reality is uh, he he just couldn't wait to spend time with you, and that's why he got up before it was light and went out to a place to be alone to be able to focus. And Jesus said uh, he didn't say anything except what he heard the Father say. He loved to be the mirror image of his Father. He loved to... Um, just find his identity rooted in that of his father. And Father, may that that challenges us, challenges me, and um, I want that to be true of my life, that when people look at me, they see your image in me. And Father, I pray that you would um, help us as we struggle, as lost and fallen people, as we struggle to get rid of our own preconceived ideas of what it's like to relate to a father because of imperfect fathers we may have had. And we look at Jesus, help us to see how Jesus related to his Father, and um, to follow after that with all our hearts in Jesus' name. Lord, I just want to thank you. Thank you that you are my Father. Lord, you have loved me, and you know me, and you understand me. There's no greater love than the Father that, that you are to me. And Lord, I thank you that my identity is in you. I thank you, Lord, that you have brought me from the desert to rich, fertile grounds. Lord, I just, uh, I can't live without you. There's nothing better than you. And I just, wanna, I just want you to know, Lord God, that I thank you that you know me. And I'm yours. I'm your beloved. And when Jesus gave his disciples his prayer, he was giving them a part of his own breath, his own life, his own prayer. Father, thank you for that reality. What an amazing, wonderful grace to allow us into such an intimate place that he would go and that he found life. And Father, I pray that you would continue to nurture us in that space, in that place, that place of grace, that place of invitation, not obligation, but that life-giving place of your marvelous grace where you feed us, you nurture us. Father, you give us life. In Jesus' name, amen.